It's November 24th, 2008, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you, as always, from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. On this edition of the NACOcast, well, it's a music theory lesson. The National Arts Centre Orchestra recently performed Beethoven's First Symphony with the young American conductor James Gaffigan. James Gaffigan, formerly the assistant conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra, is now in his third year as associate conductor of the San Francisco Symphony. I invited James to our studio at the NAC to talk about Beethoven's revolutionary approach to his very first symphony. Our conversation takes you through an analysis of the startling harmonies employed in the introduction to the first movement and continues with a discussion and examples of sonata form and an explanation of how this music is constructed. James, why is the first symphony of Beethoven so original? Well, I mean, he throws us a massive curveball to begin with, just the opening of the symphony. In the traditional sense, the composer, in some kind of bold way, um, states the key of the symphony. Um, in this particular symphony, if you C major, uh, you would expect to hear a massive C major chord or some kind of... Uh, big fanfare or something of some sort, but instead, we're we're kind of, he toys with keys within other keys. Um, he toys with this idea um, of going from a seventh chord to a distant key, which turns out to be the dominant of the key we're looking for. So it's quite complex. Within the first few bars or four bars, we already have uh, one, two, three, four. Tonalities, five okay. tonalities. Let's run through these so our listeners can understand exactly sure. what we're talking about. First of all, let's listen to the end of the first movement, which is clearly telling us and explaining to us in full orchestration what C major sounds Absolutely. like. Here's C major. Okay, a typical confident Beethoven ending. Now, one would norm- normally expect, certainly in works prior to this in the symphonies of, of Mozart and Haydn and lesser composers, that generally from the very beginning, we know what the tonality is. 
Right? Absolutely. Okay, but what on earth is going on here in the first bar of the of the adagio, the introduction? Let's listen to it first, and then you can explain what exactly is happening. Why the heck did he do this? Well, there, there are three things that I think any listener would hear, whether you know about music or not. The first chord is a question mark. Technically speaking... It's a seventh chord, and on top of it, it's a forte piano, which means loud and soft right away. So all these questioning things, a seventh chord, we have this C, E, G, B flat. We have this kind of dominant seventh. And dominant sevenths usually resolve to their tonic. The 5-1 harmonic relationship, the dominant to tonic relationship, which is perhaps the most fundamental harmonic relationship from about the year 1500 to the present day. Right. So we resolve to the tonic of, uh, of F. So we go from uh, the C7 chord, meaning the dominant of F, to F. Okay, let's listen to it again. All right, so where the heck is F major in terms of the home key of C major? Right. This is a subdominant. This is going... Now, from F, we think we land comfortably in F. We're happy. Then all of a sudden, he throws us a G7 chord, which is GBDF. Uh, and it sounds like this. So as we hear, we have a G7 chord, and it's a dominant chord, and it resolves, but it doesn't resolve in the same 5-1 relationship. It goes someplace else. Right. Instead of going to C, it goes to A minor. So A minor within, where is A minor within C major? A minor shares the same key as C major. So it's the, uh, what's the technical term that people use? Well, it's the sixth chord, isn't it? And when right. we use these numbers for, for our listeners who haven't had much theory background, within any tonality, um, musicians, when they're taking apart music like this and looking at the harmonies, uh, use words and they also use numbers so that the, the C major chord in C major is the one chord because it's built on the first note of the scale. The two chord would be built on the second note of the scale and so forth. The fourth, uh, fourth chord, which we call the subdominant because it's underneath the dominant, is built on the fourth chord and the dominant is built on the five chord. So let's just listen to the first two bars again and you'll hear us going from the one chord with a seventh added which draws us to four and then in the second bar, a dominant chord built on the five with a seventh, but instead of drawing us back to C major, it takes us to six. So once again, the first two majors go like first two measures sound like this. All right. So James, after only two chords and two measures, we have really no idea where we're going. <laughs> exactly. Question mark and question mark. So now, by the third bar, we land on a D7 chord. So a D7 chord is, is a triad on a, on a D chord, D, F sharp, A, but it's got the seventh added, the C natural. And it, because of that added C natural, there's a built-in tension and an expectation. There's an instability, and it wants to take us where? To G. Let's listen to that. Mm -hmm. 
And now as the violin theme comes out of that G, we're, we are now feeling like we're in G major. Right, and it's, a, it's content, it's beautiful um, for at least one bar, and we're very comfortable for the first time in the introduction. And there, finally, we've got to the home key of C major. And he immediately says, subdominant. Then he goes to dominant. He takes us through six, he takes us through four, he takes us through five, all these basic, simple relationships in, in, in traditional classical music. And finally, we have the real substance of the piece begins here with the Allegro con brio. Now, James, what I would like you to do at this point is to talk to us a little bit about the form of this, of this composition. Well, we call it traditional sonata form, uh, which has the introduction or the exposition um, and then taking material from this exposition, developing that material in the middle, and coming back to the recapitulation of, of the material, kind of a repeat of the exposition with a coda. Let's listen once again to the first theme in the exposition. We usually call it a subject or a theme, and it sounds like this. And as, as we're going through it, perhaps you can describe the changes in tonality, the changes in harmonic environment that this theme goes through. So it's pretty clear-cut when it opens up in C major. Um, lots of stress on the tonic and also the dominant of G. So lots of Cs and Gs and just outlining the triad. Um, he moves from into D, kind of major land, and uh, or not so much major, but moves and explores D, and then later on resolving back to C for a really exciting tutti from the orchestra. As is always the case in sonata form and symphonic music, we come to the end of the first theme and we have a transition and now we have the second subject. Yeah, completely different character. The winds introduce the second subject um, in this wonderful kind of passing it back and forth to each other while the strings have wonderful short little staccato notes accompanying. So there's this nice kind of Italian opera feel to it. congruent melodic lines in the winds, but the bounciness in the strings, this becomes very important when the, when the themes become intermingled and developed later on. And now we reach some new material, kind of dark material, very extremely soft with the melody 
in the depths of the strings, um, and then a sighing wind instrument, the oboe in this case, and then later on bassoon and clarinet. And this is completely different feel, and it's uh, some people label this a closing material or third subject. I mean, there's all different names for it, but this is completely new material, and then resolving back um, into the into our uh, key, we we resolve to G. As we listen to the repeat of this exposition of the principal themes, people often ask me, why the heck is it that so many classical composers wrote repeats? What is the tradition, what is the history that gives us repeats of expositions? I think, I mean, a great answer for that is just making the audience familiar with the raw material of the symphony. And, um, you know, in a day when you can't rewind a recording, it's it's not fun to only hear this important information only once. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity for the audience to really absorb Beethoven's, these themes, whether it be intervals, arpeggios, or these simple little themes, because later on they come back and they do all sorts of fun things. I'm particularly fond of this little counter melody in the uh, clarinets and oboes. Oh, it's fantastic. And again, the possibly analyzable as a third subject or a transition, but certainly this new material that you talked about that we're hearing now becomes very important in the development section. what's called the development section. Now, while the music's playing here, tell us what exactly a development section is. What, what are the possible activities that go on in a development? Development section is, is a kind of playground for the composer to do variations on his little germs or motives or subjects or themes, whatever he introduces in the exposition. And he could play all in... Uh, completely different keys. He could go around the circle of fifths. He can uh, mess around with the rhythm, turn it upside down. Um, all different sorts of variations on the material of the exposition. And in Beethoven's case, as in the great composers before him, Mozart and Haydn, developments very much take fragments and the fragments themselves become incredibly interesting. Absolutely. I mean, Beethoven was the king of taking a fragment. Beethoven and Brahms Brahms made a symphony of an interval, um, the fourth symphony, um, the third, and inverted into a sixth. 
um, Beethoven takes in the Fifth Symphony, and it turns a whole symphony around this rhythmic motive. How do you tell a devoted listener to experience a development section in such a way that uh, becomes a deeper listening experience? I just, open ears are very important. It sounds simple, but paying close attention to what the familiar and and then really paying attention in the recap and say, oh, that's right, that's where that came from. Because I think with, with listeners listening for the first time, it's quite intimidating to hear all these things, but you will actually, if, if you, you have an open mind and you're listening to the familiar. I think if you pay great attention in the exposition, things will come to life in the development and seem very familiar to you. And we can hear it in this sustained chords here in simple transition in the winds that the recapitulation is about to happen. Right, exactly. It, it, he sets it up without a doubt, and we're able, we know, uh, we have this wonderful seven chord forming, this dominant seven, and boom, he, we're back to C major, and with the orchestra in full force playing the first subject. Capitulation, we have the second subject, very similar to how it was expressed in the exposition. And James, here in a slightly different tonality, we have that counter melody in the clarinet, oboe, and bassoon. This is the relative minor um, of C minor, and it's the same material, just different key, and later on it just has a slight change in harmony. Now we've worked through that third theme material, and now we're entering the final stages of the movement. Beethoven is always great at extending his material and setting up these incredibly confident statements of tonality.
And so with that reaffirmation again and again of the C major chord, the movement comes to an end. I have to ask you, James, because you've, I'm sure you've conducted lots and lots of Beethoven. Do you ever have to really force yourself to count just how many uh, major chords in, in major one chords he puts in the end of pieces? <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever added a beat or left one out? No, I mean, I, not yet, but, but I'm sure it'll happen at some point. No, yeah, you, you've got to be very careful. There's, yeah, it's, it's a little tricky. <laughs> uh, what what many uh, audience members don't know about uh, what often happens on the score of the Beethoven symphonies is that after the last chord, there's a bar rest in the music, which we often have fun in rehearsals with conductors making a point of beating the the last <laughs> bar, which in which nothing is happening. One wonders sometimes. Whether there, whether Beethoven's publisher just wanted to use more ink, or ah. exactly what the point was. I think I think sometimes it makes sense, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it, it like for here, this is a bar structure thing, and um, it's it's ending on the third um, bar of a four bar structure, and they, I guess just including that fourth bar. Right. But I think it's silly. <laughs> so let's just review here. In the sonata form, we have an exposition which is laying out the ideas followed by a development section, which is a working of the ideas, their fragments and all the, all sorts of potential harmonies and uh, orchestration settings. And then we have the reaffirmation of a return to the exposition in what we call a recapitulation. And then we have what is often called a coda, an extended ending. Now, here's what I really want to talk about in 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 the language here. It's the word language. We talk about musical language and we talk about language as the English and French and those languages of human speech. Music as speech fascinates me from the very beginning of my own training. Understanding the syntax of musical structure in the same way that we understand the syntax of grammar, the organization of subject and predicate has its own analogies in, in musical, uh, musical phrases and their structure. Can you tell me whether you think that the intuitive quality of, of human expression in speech comes from the same place as human expression in music. Is it the same kind of expression? Um, I don't think so. I think it's similar, and we could compare the two. But I think the whole purpose of this language and this music and is expressing things that are bigger than what we can say with words and with language. Um, they have similarities. Their organization has similarities. You know, having a sentence or phrase in music, um, but I, there's something that goes far deeper to me than than words on a page or learning a language. If if that's the kind of question you're asking, you were a bassoonist, mm -hmm. and when you were a bassoonist, I'm sure that when you were trying to understand the the architecture and the shape and the expression of a phrase that you were playing, that you were often called upon. Well, let's put this into into English, or put it into French, or put it into German. Did you have those experiences with your teachers? Uh, oh yeah, I have, but most of them are dirty words, so I can't. <laughs> and saying out loud, no, but it, I think that naturally comes to anyone listening to music. Funny words, or 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 singing through something and putting text to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important. It's important thing. It's an important thing to do as a student. 
I find as a teacher that it's an absolutely essential thing to do to release many students' intuitive understanding of how to naturally shape a phrase. When, when you explain to them, well, you're pronouncing this word as if it had this e- emphasis on the wrong syllable. Right. No, absolutely. It's a, great, it's a great thing to do. And I think so many times seeing these little black notes on the page and these funny lines going down, it, there's nothing really beautiful about what's on the page and bringing it to life is, is is essential and putting words to it really can help i really think so have you found words for the first subject of beethoven's first symphony oh here we go <laughs> no, I don't, I don't, not yet i actually haven't but um it would be something chipper like that like let's go for a hike or some something have you have one let's hear yours no 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 i have i haven't got it yet but if you gave me a minute i'll come up with one <laughs> <laughs> so, James Gaffigan, as we look back uh, at this extraordinary first movement, it really it, it took a lot of guts for Beethoven in his first outing in sym- symphonic form to do such amazing things. Yeah, and I think I think that's his personality. I mean, he's a he had a kind of a wild personality, a wild sense of humor, very sarcastic in your face sense of humor, and it shows in his music. He's bold, and he makes no apologies for the things he does, whether that means uh, swimming into new keys that have nothing to do with the tonic of the piece. Um, and it's, it's fun. We, we all love going on this crazy journey. In your own uh, developing career as a conductor, uh, how have you approached learning the, the symphonies? Have you wanted to concentrate on some of the earlier symphonies first? or What's, what, what's the path that you're following in, in absorbing these and taking them into your gut? That's a great question. I think everyone's different. For me, um, I'm never intimidated to learn music. I'm intimidated to conduct certain pieces of music. Um, for example, I've o- I started studying all the Beethoven symphonies from the beginning, including nine. Um, and but to conduct the ninth symphony is a, quite a daunting thing. It's it's more mental than it is actually it has anything to do with physical or how intelligent you are or how well you know the piece. There's just something, it's like Bruckner 9, it's like Mahler 9. You save those pieces for later on in life. I, at least I want to. But as far as the symphonies go, I did start from the beginning. Um, I started with one because one has wonderful cut and dry form and you could really learn a lot about symphonic form from it. And then, yeah, I, I, I jumped into two and four, and then five, and then went back to three. Three is extremely complex in many ways, and it's another revolutionary piece, one of the most romantic pieces of music ever written. Um, and, of course, the Pastoral Symphony was gorgeous, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I studied all of them, and all in different orders, but, you know, when you come back to them, you learn more and more each time. We're listening now to the opening movement of the Third Symphony of the, the Eroica. What is your biggest challenge in conducting this first movement? The tempo is the most important thing to settle. It's this kind of in-between conducting in one and three. That's the biggest challenge because people want to rush, they want to play slow. It's not a natural tempo. It's not the most... It doesn't come naturally to musicians um, at first to play this symphony. But once you establish that, it's an amazing journey, the first movement.
think it's a very hard for a casual listener to understand the rather paradoxical fact that when a conductor conducts in one, it's actually quite difficult. Right. Why? Because the musicians are having to concentrate and fill in the gaps together. Because conducting in one leaves the musicians to do a lot of the dirty work. <laughs> it's to stay together. You don't have a kind of policeman up there conducting like a band director in time. Um, we're, we're showing the bigger picture. And I think the key to music in general is backing up and seeing the bigger picture like you would do with an impressionistic painting. Um, but with something like Eroica, you want to shape these phrases. You don't have time to always conduct in three, and else it looks pedantic to, to the musicians. They could do it on their own, but it takes a lot more concentration and subdividing in your, in your head. But when you're just giving a simple one beat down and then up and down, it's hard to give as much information as when you're conducting a three. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it becomes a, a more subtle challenge to the conducting craft. So you're leaving the Ninth Symphony for... The future? Yes, unless a perfect opportunity would uh, comes up with a with a great orchestra who who knows me and I know them and, and we can trust. It's a it's a massive journey and pacing it is 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 essential and having a wonderful big arc to the piece. And I think so often it's thrown together and just performed, and that really bothers me. And I, I think it's such an amazing statement, um, one of the greatest statements of all time, and to just do it in a couple of rehearsals and perform it, it's, I don't know. <laughs> it's a terribly difficult thing for any conductor to conduct a major work for the first time. Yeah. It's, and it's bound up with, with the challenges of that r rowdy group of people that you have to stand in front of, right? <laughs> well, you know, everyone always asks me when I've, when I've done with the Cleveland Orchestra, when there was a world premiere on the program or a very new complicated piece with more meter changes than Rite of Spring, Wow, that must have been difficult. I said, are you crazy? The, that was easy. That was a walk in the park. It's the Beethoven's Fifth, which really freaked me out because it's shoes to fill. I mean, I couldn't help but thinking of George Zell's recording, Dachnani's recording. I mean, you know, there are these, these things that run through your mind. But in the end, you are trying to do justice to the composer and what he wants. And if you believe that you know what he wants or you could you know you have an idea of what he wants the musicians will go with you otherwise <laughs> it won't be such a pleasant experience and i just think young conductors need to be careful with the repertoire i mean being a young conductor is about pacing yourself studying your butt off and being confident in what you want if you're flipping through pages up there and <laughs> you don't know what you want the musicians will take you on a ride but they never want to see you back there again <laughs> Well, that's not the case here. We've enjoyed our journey oh, with you. you very much uh, this week. James, I thank you very much for coming in and talking about form and surprises in Beethoven's First Symphony. James Gaffigan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. 
don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Explore the Symphony, with Marjolaine Laroche and Jean-Jacques von Vlasselaer. You can also easily find this podcast as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast, N-A-C-O-C-A-S-T. The NACOcast has a Facebook group. Drop in for a chat on any of our NACOcast topics and meet other NACOcast listeners. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard for the new media team here at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. Thank you.